Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Okay, we're here. We're back. It's May. It happens to be RJ's birthday that we're recording Happy this birthday, on. Happy so, birthday, RJ. Thank very you. Glad, very glad. May the fourth you were born. be with you. Oh gosh, uh, that 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 hasn't gotten old yet. Like, uh, <laughs> it's only been a thing for like the last ten years or so. And that's your and that birthday. Was not a thing when I'm I was, so sorry. I don't mind. It's memorable. Memorable. Okay, it, is. it is. I'm. 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 I was born on Star Wars Day. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Well, have you done anything special besides record the mocking cast? What 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 do you have in store for your birthday? Just had lunch with my wife. Going to have dinner with the family. Nice. And then there's some parishioners that have like a taco party tonight. So I'm going to go to that. So it should be a Aww. should be a fun day. Fun. Oh. And talking to you guys, which is obviously the highlight. Well, yeah. Cinco de Mayo is tomorrow, so that's kind of exciting for the taco eating. For white people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, been a lot happening in your life. What do you? What's uh? What yeah. what's worth sharing? What what do you want to say? Well, I just had the best like then worst week last week. I got to see my nephew, and he is a precious five pounds. He's so small and sweet, and cook tons of food and help my brother and sister-in-law understand appropriate bath temperatures for babies. And then that night I I got appendicitis at 4 a.m. And then I did what you should never do, which is I did not want to wake them or the baby up. So I stayed in my bed for two and a half hours until my brother got up to go to work at 6.30. And I had an appendectomy in New Orleans, Louisiana, which the nurses' accents were worth their weight in gold. So Were they like sort of Cajun accents? Oh, I mean, they're New Orleans accents, which is a little different. It's like a a Southern meets Brooklyn. But they were just like the loveliest. It was... It was, you know, I got through it. And my friend Kim, who is a saint among women, came in and took care of me the same day. And like only a mother would. And, you know, I always continue to feel like when the shittiest things happen, I'm the luckiest person. That's, like my life's thing. So, yeah, plus you lost some weight, you know. So you just you shed a few pounds. So 100%. praise God for that. You yeah, know, right like before little, swimsuit season. Thank you, Jesus. Thank yes. You, Jesus. Yes. And you'll have, have a I already scar. ordered two swimsuits? Yes, I have. Yeah. Did you get? <laughs> did you get a tummy tuck? Also, you know. No, but while, I was while like, you're down there. You know, I was like, uh, could they do that? Is that possible? You know, but anything's um, possible. Sarah. Anything's possible. You As know, John I, Adams I would say, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. I just, I feel like having like a, like, what could you do possibly surgery in New Orleans isn't on my list. So. Right. Yes. Yeah. That was not, that was not a bucket list item for it was the not. Reverend Condon. It was not. No, well, it so. was fun. I mean, I was, of course, in New York at our yeah. un- unbelievable conference. It was yeah. so great. And everyone, of course, is asking after the two of you. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of Mockingcast listeners and Mockingcast love and uh, really, really touching stuff. But I was, um, I mean, as if you didn't have reason to be gone. 
to inform people that Sarah was in the emergency room. Uh, there was there's a lot of you you were being prayed for by just a, you know a collective of you know 400 people up in New York City. So. Sarah, you had an excuse. You had an excuse. I Sarah. did. Yes, I did have an excuse. Yeah. My was, excuse is just I was exhausted. So that was that's that was it. Yeah, which is a bad excuse, a, but that's my excuse. I don't think excuse. any I don't think anyone was surprised, RJ. I think I, I hope not. <laughs> Par not for the course. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, honestly, before we we jump in, though, I I do need to say thank you to Calvary St. George's mm. Episcopal Church in New York City, and just this is 15 years of this, and they are so giving. There's so many of their parishioners that are involved, and then and Jacob and Molina were just a real godsend, and then Megan Ritchie just deserves a, a medal and a, a, a street named after her. In my opinion, she's done such a knockout job. Well, anyway, I just want to say how grateful I am. I needed I needed the um, shot in the arm, to be honest. It was it was it's, every time it, there's so many details to take care of before one of these things. And you just sort of look at I just look at my wife or to, to other members of staff is like, why are we doing this again? And then you get there. And it's just the most wonderful. It's like every Sunday. I oh, was like, time. that sounds like every Sunday to me. <laughs> Why are we doing this again? Oh my God, this is great. And then like by Monday, you're like, why are we doing this again? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, and it was, I, I have a, my brothers know sort of not to call me the week before conferences because I'll just be like, it's going to be terrible. No yeah. one's coming. It's, a, you know, shoot me now. Except you were sold out like three weeks in advance. What are you even talking about? Eh, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, the, 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 the Eeyore mind can find something to fixate on, shall we say, yes, regardless yes. of what the data or uh, the evidence suggests. So, um, and so, but you know, 15 years of doing the exact same thing before this conference, uh, you'd think I'd learn, and I haven't, but I met with uh, understanding and grace and a whole lot of love in that funny old building in New York City. Um, and tons of new people, right? Just like it was like 60% new people. Wow. Which was and I, See, you know, everyone comes once and then that's it. Then never again. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, they, they realize. They realize that hey, I can I can miss next year. This is a. It was, yeah, and a lot of that are people that sort of picked up Mockingbird through COVID, and we're like, oh, thank you, awesome. you guys, you guys, the Mockingcast saw me through this very difficult time, and that's what you know. It's it's really nice to hear. I just yeah, I wish I could God. I wish I could sort of bottle it up and send it to you guys too. But yeah. let's start in. We got some cool things to talk about today. This first piece, Sarah. This I think will hit uh, scratch you perhaps where you itch, uh, given the babies that Aww. you've just been around. It's in Vox, the baby name boom by Rebecca Jennings. This was mostly news to me, though I kind of tangentially aware of it. Baby names have never been more crucial to get right. On TikTok, a slew of creators have built followings of tens of thousands discussing baby name trends, and crucially, baby names to avoid because they're trendy. They reveal baby names they liked but didn't use, baby names they never want to see again, they predict famous influencers' baby names, sometimes with terrifying accuracy, and what names will soon be all over every daycare class's list. Many have even started paid consulting businesses to help people name their babies. Baby name gurus guess that the topic has gained massive popularity because of our cultural fascination with uniqueness. One uh, is influencer's quote is saying, my guess is it's gone hand in hand with the rise of social media, referencing the common practice of announcing your child's name on Instagram, often with personalized Etsy merch. 
Ten years ago, that wasn't the case. You told your family and small circle of friends. Now you see all these names on social media, and it makes them feel like they're super popular, which makes people want a unique name even more because they're like, well, a girl from my high school used that name, so I can't use it, even though they're never going to see that person. As a Jessica, Jessie Paquette is intimately familiar with the burden of having a trendy name. I always say to my mom, you carried me for nine months and you come up with Jessica after all that work? But she says, in all my videos, I'm like, if you like it, use it anyway. This is just my opinion. And then people are like, you're a terrible person and I hope your child hates you. (laughs) The irony here is that having an extremely popular name used to be the norm. For most of American history, families typically named their children after an ancestor, which meant that there were usually several Marys or Johns per age cohort. It wasn't until the cultural shifts of the 1960s, with smaller families and fewer children, that parents wanted to bequeath babies with names that reflected their individuality. Parents are thinking about naming kids more like how companies think about naming products, which is a kind of competitive marketplace where you need to be able to get attention to succeed said Laura Wattenberg, founder of Namerology. These days, naming children can feel like an unwinnable game. You could be accused of trend bandwagoning if you name your daughter, say, Harper. You're called a tragedy, spelled T-R-A-G-E-D-E-I-G-H. No, ma'am. If you go with something truly original. Mm-mm. Or you're simply a boar whose child is destined to be one of a billion Liams. Hence the baby name consultants who say their DMs and emails are overflowing with requests from confused parents. What do you think about this? I have seen a little bit of it out there on Instagram and I've, I've, I've at a church and in a community where people are having lots of babies. And yeah, I remember after we named our oldest son, Charlie, feeling kind of affronted by the fact that like three or four other families that we knew also named their kid Charlie and thinking, oh no, have we, have we, have we embraced a a trendy name? What's wrong with us? Are we so predictable? No one wants to be part of a trend, I suppose. But what do you think, Sarah? Well, I'm thinking about this relative that I had and my aunt Becky is going to kill me because I can't remember her name, but she, maybe it'll come to you as a whole story. Anyway, she nursed my grandmother when my grandmother was born because my grandmother's mother died in childbirth and my grandmother's grandmother took her in and this woman was a cousin who nursed her. This woman is the only reason why there are so many of us, you mm. know? And her name was like, it was like Maud <laughs> or Beulah. It was something like that. And I have tried... So fiercely every time, of course, I wasn't going to use it, but every time there's been a baby girl in the family, I'm like, well, you know, we have no, oh, I remember what it was. It was Blanche. Oh, Uh uh-huh. Golden girls. Thank you for being a brand. And and people are just absolutely not. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I totally. It also literally means white. (laughs) It does. So that might be a problem. But, you know, we also have the last name Blanco in my family. So it's a variety. Um, Blanche Blanco, done. (laughs) done. (laughs) She sounds like a comic book character. Right. White and Cuban. (laughs) So, yeah, I I mean, I totally remember, especially with Annie being more worried about this than Mm. with Neil. And, of course, we ended up choosing a family name that was super meaningful for, for us, for her. And it's Anastasia. And But I, I'm going to be real with you all. The other day I saw, and I can't remember his name, but he seems lovely, the interim 
rector, I guess would be his title at All Saints Chevy Chase. BJ? Well, yes, BJ. Mm-hmm. They just had another baby and her name is Anastasia and I wanted to stab somebody. <laughs> so, I'm like, we're the only Episcopal priest that get to name our daughter some variation of Anastasia. Like, what is wrong with you? So I do, there's a sense of, like, I would love to make fun of these people, but I totally, like, can empathize with that feeling of, like, wanting to be really original. That said, like, you know, I miss hearing a kid named John. Like, that's a sweet you know, I have so many Johns, so Davids in my family. And no one I, names you know, her kid David anymore. No, girl, nobody names her kid Sarah anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, RJ, no one whoo! names their kid Ruth Grian. I mean, that's just a, that one's gone way out the out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> it Marshall, had its moment. Your, your boys have great, great names. I mean, Marshall's, yeah, your boys have beautiful names. Marshall's oh, in the Paw you. Patrol, but otherwise, like, that, no one names their kid Marshall. I love it. There was one, there was a focus kid named Marshall, who I always, Aww. I really liked, who went to Davidson. He's a sweet, sweet guy. Um, yeah, I've got a, I mean, one of my stock jokes whenever I go guest preach somewhere is that, you know, I have a name that I literally can't pronounce. Like, yeah. that's not a joke at all. I literally yeah. cannot pronounce my name to the point where I'll try to pronounce it for Dutch people and they'll give me a quizzical look like, what are you saying? And then I'll spell it and they'll say, oh, you mean, and then they'll say They're my like, name broccoli? Are you saying you broccoli? Mean- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And my, so my first name and my last name, both impossible, but I do have Heyman at gmail.com, which is pretty awesome. That is pretty <laughs> and my, awesome. And my kids have Jackson Heyman and Spencer Heyman and Jamie is Jamie Heyman. Although, you know, Jamie, my wife's name is spelled J-A-I-M-E, like the mm-hmm. bionic woman. Mm-hmm. There's a certain subset of ladies in their mid-40s who are named Jamie, J-A-I-M-E, after Jamie Summers, the bionic woman. This That's is true. That's amazing. Uh-huh. But so when she was Jamie Foster, people would say Jamie Foster but now that's Heyman, it's usually like Jaime Heijman. <laughs> you know, the poor, <laughs> yeah. the poor girl, the poor girl. So, but my my father was part of this big Catholic Dutch family. They all have Maria in their name. Oh, so my that's dad, beautiful. My Dutch dad is was Antonius Cornelius Maria Heyman, and his brother was Nicodemus. We called Nick. And uh, right, RJ. My, my godfather was Arnoldus Edvardus Engelbertus. Nova, oh my goodness. the Dutch Catholics do it right. My mind yeah. is being blown so, right now. I had no idea. Those are some names. That's they are beautiful. some names. So we gave those. To, we did all family names for our for our kids. I guess Marshall was a combination of my best man, Paul Marshall Taylor, and my aunt and godmother, whose name is Marsha. So that was Aww. like a little bit of a combination. Mm. But yeah, I remember sharing with some very good friends when we were in our twenties a name that we really loved. That was a family name. Then they had a son, and they named him that. And we were like, where'd you come up with that name? We're like, we don't know. It just came to us. And we're like, so I want to stab someone. <laughs> that, that person shall, rena- shall remain nameless. But yeah, but then also, you know, my brothers often remind me that when I was a teenager, apparently I thought Seven, Knife, and Blue might be a good names for children. <laughs> well, you're, you're so. right in that. That's a George Costanza. I mean, we're talking about one of the it's great Seinfeld modern. episodes of all time when George tells a, a couple to name their kids Seven, and then they... What, did he? Really? No, they... they but, no, but, maybe I'm remembering that from Seinfeld, but maybe... No, I'm yeah, sorry. Anyway. I think it's Soda. 
Oh, Soda. Soda. Okay. And then, like, he said the, uh, the name he's going to name his kid is Seven after Mickey Mantle. And someone decides they're going to use it. And he the whole episode is him going absolute bonkers because they're stealing the, the names <laughs> Seven. Seven and Soda. So, yeah. And he, he's the sort of character who's been hoarding these baby names for years and years and years. It does uh, betray a, a, the... the Chill people as lifestyle brands is a I don't know how to construe that in a non depressing way. I, I oh, think it yeah. it is something we think about, you know. Is there are there gonna be how many kids other kids are gonna be named the same thing? Are they gonna stand out? Will this capture their personality? I've watched people wait months to name their child because they're waiting for sort of the the right Wait, month after they are born? I have, months? yep. And uh, wonderful folks, but and and people for whom words are very important. But you, you, I find that that must be the the pressure to sort of get it right, to feel like there's a right answer to a baby's name. I mean, that's a whole level of um, that know, happened with with Spencer. Our second, he was he was going to be Charles actually, and then we had him, and Jamie is like recovering from her C-section, and she was like on drugs. She's like, it's not Charles. We're not naming him Charles. So you're mm. welcome, Dave's all. Aww. <laughs> Well, yeah. speaking of Charles, let's move on to the coronation. That is happening oh. this weekend. I can't believe we're Seamless. talking about this on here. I, I didn't hey, you set it up here. You're I just, so good. I just walked through the doors you guys open. Oof. And this was written to well, none other than Nick Cave, his Red Hand Files. They said uh, some fans of sh- were shocked to find out that Nick Cave, the transgressive uh, rock and punk rocker, is going to the coronation. Someone, uh, five people wrote in to say, the coronation? Seriously? What would the young Nick Cave have thought of that? He says in response, I'll make this a quick one because I've got to work out what I'm going to wear to the coronation. I am not a monarchist, nor am I a royalist. He's from Australia. Nor am I an ardent Republican, for that matter. What I am also not is so spectacularly incurious about the world and the way it works, so ideologically captured, so damn grouchy as to refuse an invitation to what will more than likely be the most important historical event in the UK of our age. Not just the most important, but the strangest, the weirdest. Mm. He says, I once met the late queen at an event at Buckingham Palace for aspirational Australians living in the UK or something like that. It was a mostly awkward affair, but the queen herself, dressed in a salmon-colored twin set, seemed almost extraterrestrial and was the most charismatic woman I have ever met. Maybe it was the lighting, but she actually glowed. As I told my mother, who was the same age as the queen and, like the queen, died in her 90s about that day, her old eyes filled with tears. When I watched the Queen's funeral on the television last year, I found, to my bafflement, that I was weeping myself as the coffin was stripped of the crown, orb, and scepter and lowered through the floor of St. George's Chapel. I guess what I am trying to say is that beyond the interminable but necessary debates about the abolition of the monarchy, I hold an inexplicable emotional attachment to the royals. The strangeness of them, the deeply eccentric nature of the whole affair that so perfectly reflects the unique weirdness of Britain itself. I'm just drawn to that kind of thing. The bizarre, the uncanny, the stupefying, spectacular, the awe-inspiring. And as for what the young Nick Cave would have thought, well, the young Nick Cave was, in all due respect to the young Nick Cave, young. And like many young people, mostly demented. So I'm a little cautious around using him as a benchmark for what I should or should not do. He was cute, though. I'll give him that. Deranged, but cute. So with all that in mind, I'm looking forward to going to the coronation. I think I'll wear a suit. Love, Nick. 
Do you guys have feelings about the coronation? What I've found when you talk to people about the royal family, and I, I really... I feel most American when talking about the royal family in the sense that I genuinely don't have any emotional attachment whatsoever. Perhaps a little bit to, I remember when Princess Diana, when that wedding happened when I was a little boy. And oh, wow. I do remember that, like having like a picture book about it. But I do notice that even those folks who, you know, ideologically can't stand the monarchy or have a real hard time with any kind of hereditary or aristocracy, they still can't help a slight emotional attachment to the royal family and then almost like a bizarre curiosity. I never, I've never quite understood it, but I, I come closest to, through what Nick says. He's like, just put aside all of the actual reason or rationality behind it. There's something that taps a deep emotional well in folks. And that's just, it operates by its own logic, I suppose. RJ, what do you have to say? I don't really care. (laughs) I don't, I don't. I was talking with a guy, actually an Australian recently at my son's soccer practice, and he brought it up for somehow. Oh my God. for, for some reason. A bunch of dads then, on the sidelines talking about the coronation? I love he brought, that. I don't know why he brought it. masculinity. Okay. I can't okay. remember. I can't remember why he brought it up. And then he was talking about it. And he, he was like talk, saying how he didn't care. But then he knew everything about it. You know? And I was like, okay. You sort of, um, maybe you do care a little. Did you see Did you see the little viral video of the Boston Celtics head coach when, all right, what's the name of the, what's the, name of the successor to Charles, which is oldest son's name? William? Yeah, didn't William and what's her name? Kate. 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 They came to the states recently, didn't they? I think so. I guess. And they went to a basketball game. They went to a Celtics. Oh, they this went is to a Celtics familiar. game. Familiar. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And so familiar. at the press conference, someone asked the coach, whose name I can't remember. I can remember nobody's name apparently today. How did you feel about having the royal family here? And totally stone faced, he goes, "Were Mary, Joseph, and Jesus here?" And everyone laughs. And he goes, "Like, were they?" And he's like, "No, no. I mean, he's like that. That's the only. That's the only royal family I care about." Oh my God! What a Boston Celtics move, dude! It was so good. Yeah, I know. Actually, a guy a guy I played tennis with said that to me. He's like, "I thought you'd appreciate this." Oh you know, my it, God, that's so good. It was so great. So I guess the I mean, first of all, I do love the show The Crown, although mm. the last season was not as good as previous seasons. Okay. So I'm here for I'm here for The Crown because I like good entertainment. But I guess I'm only kind of interested in the monarchy in the way that it bears witness to the power of imputation, mm. you know, because that's all they are. That's that's it. They just have this, they have this thing that people have chosen to give them. They're not anything, they're really nothing special. Right. It's just that people choose to treat them as if they are special and right. therefore they're special, which again, that's sort of what we believe about how God treats us. Mm-hmm. You know, he, we're not special, but he treats us as if we are. So that's really the only thing. But yeah, I, God, I really, ugh. Whatever. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sarah, when is do it? you have any is it the Saturday? It's this week. Although I will say, if I was invent if I was invited, I would a hundred percent go. Yeah. And I love what Nick Cage says about like, like, come on, people. This is this would be a cool thing to be invited to. Wouldn't like, you be? Aren't you curious to know what it's like? I mean, that's yeah. what he's saying. I'll bet it'll be really, really boring. I think, don't you think? I don't know. Long. I don't know. Long and boring. Sarah, what do you think? I spent enough time in church. Continue. <laughs> I mean, so for me, like, I actually, this makes me think of the loneliness stuff we're going to talk about mm. because I think how isolated and lonely we must feel that we think we wouldn't go to this if we were invited. Like, that's really fascinating yes. to me that young people are like, 
I'm assuming they're young. They're probably not. But whatever people are like, you shouldn't go to this. It's like it to me, it speaks to like the things that we turn down now that we wouldn't have turned down 10 or 15 years ago. Cause we're just so overwrought with ourselves and our time on the internet, generally speaking, mm. and how much we miss out on to and That's what I think of that. That many people came to him and said, you shouldn't go to this. It's like, my God, look at the things we're missing out on. Mm. Um, so I think like, this is such, I actually think Nick Cage is just a beautiful witness to saying yes to the things we're invited to. Mm. So say yes to the things you're invited to. Yeah. And it's all those people fun. said you shouldn't go. They would go. They would they go. Were invited. I hope they, they oh would. Oh my God. I hope they would. Go. Literally, if you wouldn't go, you need to get help because <laughs> you're not leaving your house enough. You know, like, yeah. I mean, it just what an interesting. I'm not a big Royals person. I did think. I mean, I, I said this on the podcast when Queen Elizabeth died. For me, she was very meaningful because she was the figurehead of, of the Anglican Church. And I just think how incredible. Yeah, and Charles is a dweeb. I so. know. And he's kind of a bummer. So, you know, that's less exciting to me. But RJ, I love what you said about imputation because, I mean, these two fools definitely don't deserve, you know what I mean? Like, they like, they've been having an off and on affair for a while. They were... <laughs> mean as snakes to Diana. Like these two fools definitely don't deserve this. And yet, and yet, right. There's a whole ceremony that's going to happen. So interesting. You know, one of the things that could have, I was forwarded this past week was that there, that there's been a resurgence of interest in the book of common prayer in England. Oh my God. Um, as a result, partially of this sort of Royal wedding. There are now two people who are interested. No, 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 seriously. God uses all things for good. (laughs) There, there was a headline is why millennial men are turning to the book of common prayer. And it, it is, it's not only because it's taught to them in school, it's that I guess the combination of the Queen's funeral, Harry and Meghan's wedding. Sure. It, it, there's there's been a maybe a uh, and, and and the destabilization of COVID. But even before that, I guess the prayer book was being seen as something you know uh, older than you know twenty minutes ago that uh, you could on which you could sort of you could hold on to. And there's uh, something theological and pastoral and spiritually very profound going on i i don't know if the if that is boils down to the royals but it's certainly if that's a side effect i mean i think the book of common prayer is pretty great um yeah rj we've been getting a lot of not a lot but like a lot more than we used to college kids coming to church and we're going to start a little college group next year because one of them asked to and i was like can we start a group and but one of the things they said was we're happy to do like whatever like let's do some bible study some dinner some but we definitely want to learn about the book of common prayer we want oh, to understand awesome. why is it we worship in this way, yeah. which um, wouldn't have been my first thought, but yeah. that's what they kind of want to know. Interesting. Interesting. That's so cool. Well, yeah, I just love what Nick, also to when he says, I'm not going to judge my current actions by what I would have thought of them when I was 22. I mean, I, right? it's, we all, oh uh, I was probably wiser then I in certain ways and, and, and dement, more demented in other ways. And like, that's a, that's a heavy, that's an albatross for anyone who's a source of a public figure. You have to kind of, you're not only judged by everyone, you know, in the audience, you're also there. They want to judge you by what they consider to be the standard of you, <laughs> that of like your past self. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, our past selves are, they're just that, they're past. And they're just as problematic as our current. So, yeah. 
yeah. yeah. And that's um yeah. And judgier probably. Yeah, oh my god. They're younger. Yeah. Certainly when they're younger. Well, let's talk about the loneliness stuff. This is very powerful to see. We've talked about loneliness on this podcast almost every single episode. And yeah, some, almost all the time. It's, it's all we talk about. It's simply, <laughs> it's simply the air we breathe. And I think yeah. it's very important to talk about. But it's one thing to be seeing in social science. It's another thing for the Surgeon General of the United States. to According to CNN, the Surgeon General laid out a framework to tackle loneliness and mend the social fabric of our nation. This is one of the articles about it. Widespread loneliness in the U.S. poses health risks as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes daily, costing the health industry billions of dollars annually, the U.S. Surgeon General said Tuesday in declaring the latest public health epidemic. About half of U.S. adults say they've experienced loneliness, Dr. Vivek Murthy said in an 81-page report from his office. We now know that loneliness is a common feeling that many people experience. It's like hunger or thirst. It's a feeling the body sends us when something we need for survival is missing. Loneliness, I think of as a great masquerader. It can look like different things. Some people, they become withdrawn. Others become irritable and angry. I think the time you get concerned is when you start experiencing a feeling of loneliness for prolonged periods of time. If you feel lonely, you can pick up the phone and call a friend, and then it goes away, or you get in a car and see a family member, and that's okay. That's loneliness acting like hunger or thirst, a signal our body sends us when we need something for survival. It's when it persists that it becomes harmful. The advisory also writes, given the profound consequences of loneliness and isolation, we have an opportunity and an obligation to make the same investments in addressing social connection that we have made in addressing tobacco use, obesity, and the addiction crisis. We are called to build a movement to mend the social fabric of our nation. It will take all of us, individuals and families, schools and workplaces, healthcare and public health systems, uh, technology companies, governments, faith organizations, and communities working together to destigmatize loneliness and change our cultural and policy response to it. I mean, he lays out, there's like six, a six-pillar framework about strengthening social infrastructure, which sounds like the setup to, you know, inject you know like money into churches almost uh, just sort of to make it easier for people to for groups like ours to exist and then there's also in there uh he includes sort of reforming digital environments and how those have not could been contributors to connection but i i was blown away i don't think i was expecting this i know we talked about the minister of loneliness that was appointed in the uk mm-hmm. a number of years ago but it is such uh, an just an, an acknowledgement, I think an official acknowledgement that this is more than just feelings. This is health. I've always I've wanted this to think to understand it as public health is is good. It's it's not a bad thing to do. It's it's a start and to uh, especially we talked one time like you can you can say you're addicted to something, but to admit that you're lonely is like much harder in our society. You I'm you know. I, and I think that that um, is really telling. I love the fact that churches can be places where people connect. I don't think that's their primary purpose, but if that can be a, a, a secondary or tertiary benefit, then by all means. And th- if that brings people in the door, I'm, I'm happy about that too. But I don't know. Sarah, what do you think? 
Oh, I have. So just something funny. I saw on Instagram recently, this person had said like, um, you know, my kids told me the other day that when they grow up, they're going to sleep in as late as they want and they're going to stay at home all day and they're going to eat whatever they want. And she was like, I had to tell them that sounds like depression. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I actually think that the most important part of my ministry to these college students that I'm leaving, like I would have told you like, Oh, it's so they, you know, so they know the love of Jesus is for them. I think the most important thing I did was create an anecdote to loneliness. I really do because I mean, God created it, but like that I was able to make a space for that because with them coming, you know, having gone through high school during the pandemic and then, you know, some of them were in college that I ministered to during the pandemic. It's just been so interesting to kind of, we're doing this work right now and thinking about who they're going to call next. And, you know, it's really them defining the community and what, and you know, you've worked with college students, you get no feedback. So mm-hmm. you're just like, you don't, you don't know if they like it, you know, them talking about how they could count on seeing other people like twice a week, no matter what they were going to see other people was massively important to them. Mm. They were like, we have to keep this. This has to be a part of who we are. So, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have experienced loneliness. I think I'm really nervous about the move to Tennessee because I won't have a job and I'm already anticipating the loneliness of being in a house by myself in a city that I don't know, you know? Mm. And yeah, which is why I'm like, you know, which is why I'm like looking at jobs that are like, you know, totally different from what I've done before because I just know it's so good for me to be around people. Mm. It's so good for all of us to be around people. And I don't think that they're, I mean, I, okay. I think the, the one way to stop all the gun violence is to get these like automatic weapons off of our streets. Like immediately. I want to be really clear about that. Also, I think us being in greater community with each other would be incredibly helpful for some people. Mm. Um, and I wish that there was more, I mean, it would be a miracle to me if, if the government stepped in and was like, basically did a stimulus for any organization that, you know, supported community because I mean, what, you know, how many more people could we reach and and how many more people could we connect? It would just be incredible. Amen. That is so sad to hear that your college kids are so lonely. Like when I look back on college, I would think of that as one of the times in my life when I was the least lonely. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, I think you have are hyper brilliant. I mean, and I can say this, you've got a kid coming to Rice. You're hyper brilliant when you come to Rice. You have worked really hard. You've been very focused on your studies and I think sometimes socialization doesn't come naturally to some of them. And then I think the pandemic certainly exacerbated that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a sense of loneliness, but you don't even really know that's what you're feeling. You just know that when you're around people, you feel so much better, right? Mm. So that's been, I think that's probably the most, I would love to be like, it's because I preached the gospel. But like, I think the most important thing I did was to help college students not feel lonely. I mean, the stats well, bear it out that it's like 15 to 24 year olds are yeah. the most lonely. Sweet I mean, it's, it's yeah, um, of course, it's these not precious people, young people who are 
actually surrounded by their peers, but, yeah. uh, mm. or it is people that are surrounded by their peers. RJ, what were you going to say? Well, just that the love of God and the grace of God's very often, if not most often mediated through other people. Totally. Who just love you unconditionally and yes. you can hear it, you can yeah. hear it, but to actually experience it. And that's why I feel like magic really happens, like gospel work really happens when the message is being proclaimed in word, but then also in the midst of a group of people where you just kind of feel loved. And you've and, and I will say, like, that's not to be weird. That's like consistent feedback I receive about my church, which I think was tr- true before I got here, is it just feels like a place where you can kind of be yourself. Yes. And you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Yeah. And there's a warmth to it and a welcome to it. And, you know, so I think when you get that combined with hopefully talking about Jesus, talking about the gospel, it can be really powerful in people's lives. So like, I think that's why, you know, every Thursday morning I got 25 middle-aged men showing up for a Bible study on the gospel of Matthew, <laughs> you know, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty amazing. I, I, that's the same feedback. That's why it's very important that for, to me, at least that Mockingbird always does these in-person events, because this is what, yes, there are a lot of people that are isolated out there and um, yeah. I can't find a faith community or church that is remotely um, healing. And that said, like I, in New York, when I, when I spoke, one of the things I did was try to lay, sort of lay out some of what I consider to be our methodology on this podcast, which is, you know, not something, you know, there is a methodology behind I'm what like, we're oh doing. Oh my God, we have methodology? What is it? Well, Sarah, it's actually, you're the one of the people, you're, you're one of the pillars of it. It's when confronted with bizarre behavior or just amusing behavior or truly alienating behavior, you have to ask yourself, how might this be a cry for help? Mm, how yeah. might this be an expression of a suffering? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you condone the, the activity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean any of that. But, you know, Sarah, we, when we were talking about money on the last episode, you said, I, I think this is in some ways a cry for help because people have been so let down by so many other things, so many other institutions. And of mm-hmm. course they would say money is the only safe harbor here that I can control. And I think when it comes to the way that this plays out with loneliness is you look at part of like social ills or just in just in your own town when folks are acting in truly anti-social shall we say ways you want you you, it bears asking the question if these statistics are true it bears asking the question how might this possibly be an expression of loneliness or a misguided attempt to find love or to find to to feel acknowledgement or the sorts of things assert value assert worth like i'm here yeah i'm here and I think that that they're right in that it's not just blood pressure that goes up when you're lonely. It's all sorts of other things that come that the whole world falls apart, basically. But it does have physical manifestations. But that's what I, I think is always important. To, instead of judging the behavior immediately, you say, how might this be a cry for help? How might this be the, the action of a lonely person? If it If I were to believe that our culture is profoundly lonely and despondent but like what how might that inform how i understand what's going on and it might again it wouldn't excuse but it might explain you know and that can be helpful wouldn't you say yeah i mean you just did it i think that's where the grace gets in right (laughs) is is when you can kind of take a minute and and think about your own loneliness and your own failure to be like a pleasant person to be around right and why that why that is your struggle and why that is everyone's struggle, I think I think that's how the grace gets in. 
Well, here's a talk about an interesting attempt to mitigate loneliness. This appeared in The Atlantic by a guy named Adam Mastroianni. The title was, I Ruined Two Birthday Parties and Learned the Limits of Psychology. He begins by saying, The 2018 meeting of the Society for Personality and Social Psychology was buzzing with a new idea. Talking to strangers, research showed, could be surprisingly delightful. A few years earlier, two researchers had persuaded a bunch of Chicago commuters to talk to one another during their train ride in exchange for a free banana. The participants reported having an unexpectedly wonderful time. Now, several other teams have uh, been reporting similar results. And he says, well, I decided he decides to put these uh, this idea into action that he needs to interact with more strangers. And so Adam loves escape rooms. And so I guess there's escape rooms that you can sign up for. Like you can see if there's any room left in like there's like a. And so he found a couple open slots. That is Jamie's private hell. (laughs) He found a couple open. Something my wife will never do. It's Josh's. He's the same. Seven or eight people signed up and there's two spots remaining. And he like decided to sign up for both of those thinking he could make friends with strangers. And of course what he discovers is that... there's a basically like groups of friends, and then he's just this random guy. He talks about the second escape room. He says it was unmistakably a birthday. The room was a prelude to a party. The gang of friends were, were newish parents who had left the kids with a babysitter for a little adult fun. And the room was prohibition themed, and all the other guests were wearing old timey clothes. The ladies wore flapper dresses and fascinators, the men wore suspenders and spats. I wore jeans and a plaid button-down. Once again, I embarrassed myself by solving virtually none of the puzzles in the escape room. I walked around with fake thoughtfulness, picking things up and putting them down. (laughs) When we got out, we got out the group assembled for a photo. Let's let's do one with Adam and one without. (laughs) Someone offered weekly. That's okay. I gotta go. I said, already fleeing. And he says, where was my surprisingly delightful time of meeting strangers? Why had science lied to me? He wants to talk about more how this generally plays out. He says, psychologists sometimes act like we're compiling a how-to book for life. Year by year, we scratch out the old wives' tales, folk theories, and cognitive biases, and then replace them with evidence-based guidance for making better, happier decisions. But we are not compiling a how-to book for life. Many of our studies fail to replicate, but, an even, but even if every paper were 100% true, you could not staple them together into an instruction manual. Each new finding in psychology presents an opportunity to pick out the most useful bits, learn from them, and ignore the rest. We're already used to doing this in other contexts. When we hear a narrative, we understand that some details matter, like Brutus was betrayed by Caesar, and some don't. Brutus wore a toga. We know that a story shows us what can happen, sometimes friends turn on you, not what always happens, every friend will turn on you. Nobody has to tell us how to reason in this way. I acted like the studies showed that conversations with strangers always go better than expected, rather than showing that they sometimes do. And I took the research literally, go meet people right now, rather than seriously, which would be, be more open to meeting new people, but you know, don't be stupid about it. <laughs> learning how to apply the findings of psychology research is not like learning long division. There isn't a handbook, and nobody can tell you when you're doing it wrong. You pick it up slowly, painfully, through trial and error when you see the crestfallen faces of the people whose birthdays you've ruined. 
No amount of expertise can speed up that process, which is why psychologists can study happiness and marriage all we want, and yet some of us still end up depressed and divorced. But here's one finding you should take literally. Don't sign up to do escape rooms with strangers. I thought it was very funny, the idea of like, we'll, we'll take one photo with Adam and one without him. <laughs> Get lost, you weirdo. Um, it's, uh, but I, I, I do think it's, it's neat to, to say that interactions with strangers genuinely are generally kind of are unexpectedly wonderful for more people than would admit that. But then for him to go and put that into practice in this almost fundamentalist type way is what he's describing. Because they were talking about one-on-one interactions. I don't think (laughs) groups with this one random person is a completely different scenario. But what if they talked about how-to books? I think we're looking, we're dying for the law and we want to turn, you know, psychology now as sort of a secularized form of the law of like, if I could just figure out the exact correct way to do something, I will not be lonely. And in this case, it, it backfires. So I don't know. Have you guys ever had a, an experience with strangers or what do you think oh about, gosh. Sarah, I just have a, when I read this, I thought Sarah's got to have some sort of story about this. So funny thing, last week, I got out of surgery, uh, you know, on Wednesday, stayed the night at the hospital, was pumped with like eight hours worth of antibiotics, like the whole thing. Thursday morning, I leave the hospital with my beloved, like basically mom fill in, who is maybe the funnest person I know. And super sweet and generous and brilliant and all these things. What that also means is that night when we were going to have dinner, she was like, let's go out. <laughs> After the appendectomy. Right. Yes. And so we went to this place, Pascal Manali's, which is like old school New Orleans. And, you know, I knew I knew immediately I might have made a grave error because she's like, let's get raw oysters. And I was like, OK. And Raw oysters. They, Yeah, and they gave us a coin, and they were like, we're going to hold your place at the bar with these signs. Go over there, and this guy's going to, like, crack them open, right? And it was incredible. The guy has been doing this. He's been working at this restaurant for 39 years doing oysters, and he had his own little kingdom. I mean, it was very New Orleans. Mm. And, you know, the only thing about raw oysters in New Orleans is they're golf oysters, so it's basically just a raw chicken breast. So not easy for me to eat post-appendectomy. Too big, too big. <laughs> They're so big. Ugh. We lowered our number to six, but then we went back to the bar, and then these, like, because it's Jazz Fest, these young, beautiful people come in. They're all new parents. They're out together. They're old college friends. Kim immediately turns around to them and is like, y'all are so beautiful. When I tell you that they just attach to her, I mean, she's a loneliness an- antidote, if anybody has, just attach her. And at 845, I had to be like, so I got out of the hospital this morning. <laughs> 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 I just, I mean, you know, I just tell that story. I don't know why. I, it just was such an interesting encounter with strangers. It was so beautiful. And of course, like, you know, they want to know how we're connected. And so I tell them about how my parents died and how Kim and her husband David is. I mean, it was just, and they were like crying. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. This is over the top beauty, right? Also my stomach hurts because it has holes in it. But I think the other thing I think about is, and I I feel like this is something we try to do well from our little spot in the Christian world, is that 
preaching is very dangerous to me when it tells us what we're capable of. And preaching only works when we tell each other what God is capable of. And so I think that's where this weird thing happens in psychology, where we think we can get like a play-by-play, like you do this and you do that, and then you're happy. And we hear we hear sermons like that mm-hmm. from people all the time. And, and it doesn't work because people are these like beautifully messed up, complex creatures who like get a surgery and then go eat raw oysters at a bar in New Orleans, you know, like... It's just, I don't know. I, th- I mean, you know, we love therapy. We always say that, but, but it, it isn't as easy as the books lead us to believe. And I think that's why I find a real theological home in a place that's not trying to say, this is what you're capable of, but instead says, you know, we're not sure what you're capable of. <laughs> this is what God is capable of. Yeah. Yeah, the morals don't try to break into a pre-established group of friends in an right. escape room. Now, when everyone's in a bar in New York, in New Orleans, and drunk already, and it's you fun. happen to be the most outgoing person on the in face the of the world. earth, you're like a tiny, might, beautiful blonde might, woman. Then it yes. might work exactly. <laughs> then it but works. Like, um, but I will say, you know, one of the beauties of having small children, Dave, is and going to endless sporting events, is that you end up make becoming friends with strangers. You know, because you're there with other dads and other moms and you kind of talk to them and get to know each other. And maybe you meet them at first. And you're like, do I like this person? I'm not sure I like this person. I'm not sure if they like me. But then, like, you spend enough time together. Like, okay, <laughs> I can hang Our kid, And then your kids like each other. And But the whole thing about the predictability and controllability of life is just so totally true. Right? To me, the, the, I've said this before. You know, I've told groups of young people who are dying to, you know, find somebody and fall in love. I was like, okay, who has an image in their mind or like a list of the perfect person? And I'm like, now blow that up. Rip it up, tear it up. Because the person you marry is going to be just about the exact opposite of the kind of person you thought you'd be with. You actually have no idea what you want or need. And and, and so the, the, the the more open you can be with that, the more likely you are actually that maybe. And by the way, falling in love is a miracle. It's just a miracle. That's all it is. You know, it's not something you can make happen. Yeah. And then also, this is totally geeky, but I do find like quantum physics really fascinating because when you get down to the quantum, do you know about this? Like when you get down to the quantum level, particles behave differently if you're watching them versus if you're not watching them. What? Yes. Perceiving quantum particles changes their behavior. Mm. Oh my gosh! So the fun, so somehow the fundamental like nature of reality, <laughs> yeah, just like children. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing up there? It's too quiet. How did you know? How did you know? I'm. Your mother has magic powers. So the fundamental nature of the universe, at least the physical universe, is completely strange and unpredictable. Mm. You know, so, and that's just true. And the, the more we can just, what does Jesus say? Every day has enough trouble of its own, right? Mm. One day at a time, expect the unexpected. Don't get too freaked out. God is over it all. It's all going to be fine. Say hi to f- people, attractive people in bars in New Orleans. <laughs> but do not eat gigantic golf oysters. Oh, my God. It's too big. That's t- it's a terrible choice. It was. Yeah. But especially yeah. post-epidectomy. That's the whole part yeah. of it. Is like, all the, the golf. Like- I have you heard of the BP oil this. spill? For God's sake, You didn't woman. just have like your foot, you know, a broken foot alive? or something. It was your actual stomach oh, no. that was being operated on. God. Oh, no. 
Um, well, let's move to something that I, what, you always say yes. I got invited to the coronation. It was just at a bar in New Orleans. Okay, yep. you just say there yes. you go. Right. We say yes to what we're invited to. There, I, yeah. That's see, you're more integrated. Well, let's end with something that's very powerful that came in this week, and I am sort of hesitant to do it because it sounds a little self-congratulatory, but it's it's actually more at the, we're used to it at the depths of uh, of I think the lived experience of the gospel. Of this is the section where Dave just reassures himself. So <laughs> yes, we will not. We will make fun of Dave while Dave reassures are you, himself. Are you finished, you two? I mean, how, you, you yeah, keep it coming. I'm, I'm I'm here all day. It's an unsolicited review of the Mockingbird Conference that that no one wants by Ben Madison. Uh, ben is an Episcopal minister in New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia, and a wonderful church there. And he talks about what was powerful to him about this past weekend, and in doing so, he gets at some very powerful things. He says, at the heart of this ministry, he's talking about Mockingbird, is the hard truth that everything, everywhere, and everyone begins from a place of need, of lack, of holes to be filled, wounds to be bound. Everything is a cry for help. Because it always begins from a place of our brokenness, not a disembodied brokenness of others, but of the attendees, the most challenging things in life are assumed and not at all shocking. Our parental issues, the death of our loved one, the failure of our ministry, and the crumbling of marriages, friendships, and expectations. As much as we might think that what uh, makes this Mockingbird thing unique is a shared hermeneutic, low anthropology, or a soft spot for Martin Luther. It's really only our brokenness, named and unnamed, mm-hmm. done and, unnut- and undone. And, of course, the wounded Savior who meets us in his own wounded and broken body and speaks a word of grace. The wounded have no time for clout chasing. The grieving have no want for platitudes. The dead have no need for grievance. And because this place is awash in wounds, grief, and death, nothing will suffice but the gospel, the saving, gracious, forgiving, helping good news of Jesus Christ at its cleanest, its purest, its most essential. Brokenness met with love, sin met with grace, tears and pain met with laughter. Then it gets subterranean, and he says this. He says, a little over eight months ago, my daughter, who'd been with us since she was six days old and was at that time almost four, was reunified with her biological family. Over the last four years, so much of our hope and the possibility of hope and life and a happy ending involved her. Mm. I could laugh at the pain and injury caused by infertility because her little voice was cooing in the back of my first talk. That was it when he spoke at Mockingbird. I could shout and curse and tell everyone I hate how much God intervenes in my life because there she was, all grown up after COVID, a smiling, beautiful representation of so much pain and so much loss, but also so much love and oh, so much hope. Over the years, attendees and friends gave her nothing but love, laughing at her antics, holding her while she slept, made silly faces and colored and snuck her snacks during the long talks. You checked in on us. You prayed for us. You didn't try to say God has a plan or it'll be all right. And you said, I'm so sorry. I can't even imagine. You said, we miss her. We still pray for her. This year, she wasn't there. I sat further back than I usually did because even though I didn't expect it, I could almost hear her little laugh at the magic show. We had a big magic show. I knew exactly where she would be playing in the aisle and making friends with random people. This year, even as the pews were filled with new people, there was a void before we even started. This year, I had died. No coming back from this one. 
And my grief co-mingled with everyone else's, and in that magic that is the gospel was met with love and hope, grace and help. My grief and your grief and the grief of the world are met by Christ's love and offering of himself. After the waiting room clears in an emergency, after you see a loved one for the last time, or turn the lights off on your childhood home, or leave a moment that you didn't even realize you'd want to last forever, if after those moments you're left feeling like the void will swallow you whole, please accept this unsolicited review and promise that it's all hard. Everything is so broken. We need more help than we can ever get, but also the gospel is true. God's grace is real, even if it's infuriating. We're here for you. Grief looked in the eyes and met with love. Made me cry when I read it, I gotta say. I know Ben and I've gotten to see they've gone through this foster care journey and it's, it rips your heart out. We, we talked about one of his articles many years ago that he talked about for Christmas. Mary, Mary did you know? Talking about uh, how... Uh, you know, correlating it with the grief that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have felt in having to give up her son, and that sort of looming over anyone who's a foster parent in such a visceral way. I mean, this sort of thing. I I believe it really is uh, an antidote to loneliness. It's not. It's 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 not mockingbird. I think it's the gospel. I think it's. Uh, the, the church at its best. I think it's the Holy Spirit really coming amongst people. Uh, but there is something about that shared assumption of pain and of, of need for help that, it, at least in Ben's case, it sounds like it afforded him the ability to to um, receive love in a way that he didn't even realize. But I don't know. You guys weren't there. What do you, what do you think about this article? Is it just a advertisement for Mockingbird or is it something more? Well, I, I'm very good friends with Ben and his wife, Ashley. I've been on a text at least weekly, and I have an incredible amount of compassionate admiration for them because what they've been through has been so hard. And I remember when their little girl was at the conference, I, helped, I picked her up to help her wash her hands. Mm. And... You know, all I can think about is this tattoo that I think Ashley has that is of a fa- it's like a classic family portrait. She had this done when they lost their daughter and um and it, it's like a classic family portrait in a frame, but the the three members of the family are all in like the ghost sheet thing, you know, yeah. with the eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like such a beautiful symbol of like what's lost and and death and suffering. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think Ben and I have probably even gotten closer over the past few years is, and why he, I think he probably loves Mockingbird and I still do too. Right. Is like, because there's a, a sense that like you can suffer here. You don't have to hide it. And that is, um, there's no place else. You know, I mean, I feel like even even like the college ministry that I love so much and I got to create, like they could suffer to a point, right? But it was still just like, okay, but like we're all in college and we're really lucky and we're so privileged to be here and like we're at Rice and we worked really hard and you know, you could pr- you could be you could suffer to a point, right? But then you had to kind of get yourself together and I think Mockingbird is such a refuge because it's a place that like never asks you to get yourself together. Mm. So I'm really grateful 
I'm really grateful for it. I'm really grateful for, for Ben's reflection and, you know, just praying for them all the time. Um, you know, they have three babies now yeah. in the foster care system. <laughs> um, and I mean, they're just the best. They're just, there's nobody better. So, yeah. But to say that there was someone missing before it even began oh. and that, that, uh, but that was so somehow bad. painful in the extreme yet also the avenue to, through which the grace gets in, you know, mm-hmm. um, I can't imagine. I, anyway, I really can't imagine, but I do. I do have visions of that wonderful child um, that I got to spend mm-hmm. an evening with. RJ, what do you think? I was just thinking how um, I get kind of exhausted and a little bit resentful of like all the things God takes away. Mm. You know, yeah. I do, yeah. and I've experienced not. I've had a child taken away, right? You know, but I've taken had quite a few homes taken away. Mm. And it was really, really hard. But that seems to be what he does. I mean, and, and, and not always, but sure. there are seasons of like rest and peace and joy. And, but he seems to, I don't know, the, the, the words that Jesus says about like uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, or, you know, giving up fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers for him. And, and it's just like, I, what does that even mean? I don't want that. And yet, that has felt like at times the reality of, of uh, my life and like our lives in ministry, you know, and it's just life in general, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But he does, he does, you know, he, he shows up, but it does feel like he, he's saying, I don't know, you got to trust me. You got to trust me. Mm-hmm. My grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my power is made perfect. You know, you got to trust me. It's interesting that the, the um, lectionary passage for this weekend is the stoning of Stephen. Stoning Stephen. When he's like yeah. in the middle of being killed by a mob. Yeah. And yet he looks to yeah. the heavens and says, I see the Son of Man. And then he asks for those who are killing for him to be forgiven. Yeah. yeah. And if that's not a countercultural, you know... Invi- oh my invitation. God, it's the worst sales pitch, right? The worst That's sales pitch. Always, it's the worst sales pitch in the world. <laughs> and yet, here but you also have like God at work. The reality, like RJ was saying, like it is the it is like well, our yeah. reality. In in our men's group, where like Matthew chapter ten, when Jesus is like giving instructions to his disciples before he sends them out, you know. And this morning is like I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. They're going to drag you before magistrates. You're going to get whipped and flogged, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And one of the guys is like, "This is the worst pep talk ever." <laughs> <laughs> you know, but Jesus also says, "Don't worry about what you're going to say, yeah, because the Spirit will be with you, and and uh, God knows every hair on your head, and you're so valuable to Him, and so don't be afraid." And so it's this weird both and, like crazy stuff, crazy shit is going to happen, and it's going to be hard, but I'm going to be with and you. And He also says, "I'm going you know, ahead of you to prepare a place for you," and that that's the gospel reading for this yes. week. It's, uh, I mean, damn yeah. it, I, it yeah. again, but it's also deeply, talk about reassurance, that's, um, yeah. that's something, uh, yeah, even, even more transcendent, I suppose. And the flip side is, you know, everyone, ex- just about everyone experiences losses like that at some point in their life. And the choice, you're, it's not really a choice, right? But you either believe that God is present and active and loves you and knows what he's doing, or... 
something else. Yeah. <laughs> that he that he doesn't exist. Right. That he doesn't care. Right. Uh, that he he has no power. Right. That he's punishing you. You know, and that's infinitely worse. Yeah. Infinitely worse. Yeah. You know, it, it's like that story. You know, about the woman whose son gets in a car accident and and. He goes, she goes to the head and the hospital and she's dead. And the priest rushes in and says, I want to assure you, um, God had nothing to do with this. Oh, man. And, and she says, please don't take away the only hope I have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like when tragedy strikes, like the, on, like when real, the only hope is that somehow there's a loving God who's over it all. Right. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And that's not tragedy so. spelled with a D-E-I-G-H. I mean, it is one I say it, but yeah. <laughs> well, I thought th- I don't think we could possibly get any heavier than that. So why don't we stop now and we'll reconvene in a, in a, in a couple weeks um, before we take a little bit of a break for the summer. But thank you guys for talking, and um, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>